Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, the 1967 North Carolina murder of Brenda Joyce Holland. And about five days later, her body was found in the Albemarle Sound, uh, partially clothed. Uh, pathologists would find that the cause of death was ligatory strangulation and that she may well have been raped as well. And for an island that was used to just cuttings and stabbings that you could quickly solve, this was calling the end of innocence. This just shook everybody to their core. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here with me. Thank you once again for joining me. I'm so excited to have as my guest today, John Rayleigh. He is a graduate of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, the former editorial page editor of the Winston-Salem Journal, and has written for the Coastland Times on the Outer Banks and has won local, state, and national awards for his writing and investigative reporting. And he is the author of the book we are about to discuss. It is called The Lost Colony Murder of the Outer Banks, Seeking Justice for Brenda Joyce Holland. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Eric. Yes. So how did you first become interested in this case? Well, Eric, I, I literally grew up with the case for, for a whole generation of us um, coming, uh, growing up on the Outer Banks um, in the 1960s and 70s. We were haunted by the case and knew about it. And for me, it was kind of even closer because um, um, a good friend of my father's who we called my Uncle Billy, they were in World War II together, um, ran a motel in Kill Devil Hills, the Ocean House. And um, when I was about six, when this murder happened, my Uncle Billy would tell me about it. I'd be sitting in the lobby of his hotel, and my Uncle Billy would be smoking cigarettes. And he'd pull out the Lost Colony program, and he'd point to a picture of Brenda and say, this beautiful young lady, her body was found floating in the sound. And then he'd turn a couple of pages over and say, 
and this is who killed her. Some of a fellow cast member. And I was just always, so I was, I was like, what? And then later, as I started working on this book, I realized how, why my uncle Billy was so fascinated and connected to the case. He owned the ocean house motel with Sheriff Frank Cahoon, um, who was the sheriff in charge of this case. Um, they were kin by marriage and the, the state Bureau of investigation agents working this case were actually, um, their headquarters was the ocean house. They were living there and working out of there. So when my uncle Billy was telling me this, the SBI agents were literally like rooms over working on the case. So it's, it's, I'm hot hardwired for it. Wow. Yeah. So this is a very interesting area of the world, this part of North Carolina. Can you talk about the geography? Uh, what is it like there? Yeah. So the Outer Banks is just a dreamland. Um, uh, we're so fortunate to have it. It's, uh, it's uh, it, in, it includes islands and peninsulas and juts out far into the Atlantic. It's kind of a hurricane magnet. Um, just offshore is what's called the graveyard of the Atlantic, where the Gulf Stream meets the Labrador Current and causing all kinds of wild swirling water. And, and there's some you know, terrible sand, terrible shoals and uh, literally hundreds have um, boats have um, gone down out there since the 1500s. Um, so just a fascinating land of mystery and magic. And, and the Lost Colony has always been part of that. Um, and Brenda, the Lost Colony being the outdoor pageant that Brenda came to work on in 1967. Um, she was 19 years old and she was from Campbell College, had been active in theater there. So this was a big deal for a 19 year old to, um, to, to get a job like she had gotten there. And she comes down to the island Roanoke Islanders call outsiders wash-ins. Uh, they don't always, they rarely accept them as one of their own. The exceptions being Andy Griffith and some others. And and Brenda was one. In that one month, they came to love her. for. They, they noticed things she did. Like she taught a local boy who had some health problems and had never learned to swim. He was 12 years old. So she took him in the ocean and she taught him how to swim. And she would say, keep your chin up, buckaroo. She was just lovely. That's great. Yeah. I do want to ask you about the Lost Colony play. It's this very revered theatrical production that has a long and fascinating history. Would you share some of the history with us? Yes. Um, so the Lost Colony, uh, there had been actually a couple other colonies on Roanoke Island before this colony, and it was led by the, the governor of it was John White. And... Um, at one point, they're running low on provisions, this colony on Roanoke Island. So John White goes back to England to, to get more provisions for him, more food. And at that time, England's at war with Spain, so he can't get back. It took him two years to get back. He gets back in 1587, and, all he's, and, and the colony's gone. So that's where the lost colony word comes from. Um, cryptically, there was uh, just the word Croatan and just C-R-O-A, carved on a fence post in a tree, which um, suggested they might have gone off with the Croatan Indians. Um, so it's been a mystery that's never been definitively solved. So it was, you know, it's always fascinated all of us. I mean, you know, as school children in North Carolina, it's one of the first things you learn about, and especially growing up down there. And um, I thought what was so fascinating about Brenda's case 
was you've got the mystery of what happened to her working in a play about that lost colony. So it's a mystery overlaid over another mystery. And um, so that was a fascination. Right. I think you, you write that this production began in the late 1930s. 1937. So it had been around for 30 years by the time Brenda came. And at first uh, it was mainly locals. And then uh, Andy Griffith was in the play, rising up to play Sir Walter Raleigh. And he was in the play in the late 40s and early 50s. And, and there were some other stars. There was William Ivy Long was around, and he's become just a great uh, costume costumer on Broadway. Um, but but Andy, really, after Andy made it big in the 50s, um, you know, of course, with his namesake show, then it attracted a lot more people that wanted to catch the magic that Andy had caught there. It must have been fun to hear Andy Griffith with his wonderful Southern drawl playing an Englishman. Yeah, he called it an Englishman with a Southern accent. And the the thing about the, the other fascinating thing about that island is that it's, as I say in the book, it's like, it's like parallel time. I mean, the, the ocean is constantly um, revealing shipwrecks from hundreds of years ago. And uh, a lot of, I knew I was on a good course with this book because my best sources speak in the, in the old English brogue, ois is, instead of ice, it's ois, and instead of tide, it's toyed. And it's, it's just beautiful to hear. And it's just, you can sense that the past is not that far off. And, and it was the, you know, and we're talking hundreds of years there. And for Brenda's, you know, just over a half century, which is nothing. I mean, at one point I'm sitting by the ocean and Brenda's little sister, Kim, hands me the necklace that Brenda was wearing on the night she died. And I'm holding that, sitting by the sea, and I knew I had to do something about this case. Yeah, that reminds me. I wanted to ask you about that. You had access to a lot of people very close to Brenda, and that allowed you the opportunity to really put her personality on paper. Yes, I was, Eric. Um very, very lucky um, in that regard. One thing, just for your listeners, I'll, let me just give a capsule description. So, so Brenda disappeared on the first day of July, 1967. And because she was such a reliable, responsible worker, when she didn't show for work that Saturday night at the Lost Colony, everybody, they're, they're, they're backstage, they're drinking Coca-Cola's out of those little green bottles and they're smoking cigarettes and they're worried to death about their friend. And by, by, by Monday, they're all, the, all our fellow cast members are, are going through the brush in the woods looking for a um, massive hunt. Um, and about five days later, her body was found in the Albemarle Sound, uh, partially clothed. Uh, pathologists would find that the cause of death was ligator strangulation and that she may well have been raped as well. And for an island that was used to just cuttings and stabbings that you could quickly solve, this was calling the end of innocence. This just shook everybody to their core. So you said that Brenda fit in really well. She really embraced this artistic, free-spirited place. Right. But, but she grew up in a far different environment, right? 
Exactly. Her folks were real good people, um, blue collar, but kind of land rich. It's kind of like um, the Waltons. So like they had a they had a family mountain called Holland Mountain that they reveled in and that they grew up with and and just a good, good family. And they lived in Canton, which is outside of Asheville, up in the Smoky Mountains. Um, and they were they were mountain people for generations. And her parents did not want her to go to Roanoke Island. They, they, they didn't know about that place. They were protective. They were worried about her. But Brenda was determined. Um, by then, I think she was thinking about um, just great talent at, at Campbell College. She worked on Oklahoma and other plays and good makeup and costumer, made a lot of her own clothes, and including theater clothes. And um, but she's determined to get there. I think she wanted to make it in, in the theater field. And, you know, I, she knew she never could couldn't she couldn't just take off to New York and, and start waitressing and try to make it not from her cloistered background. But this was like a, a good step she could take. She could make those connections and try to make it from there. And she was loving it. So as a young woman, pretty much on her own for the first time, she was experimenting you know, going out with some different guys, very normal at her age with her newfound freedom. But once she went missing, the fact that she's dated a few different guys really complicates things for Sheriff Cahoon, right? It does. It does. As I was saying, um, Sheriff Cahoon was a good man, but his experience up to then had been Saturday night cuttings and shootings where he pretty much knew from the get-go who it was um, so this was something he'd never seen before too. And it, it, you know, as the case starts, the Alamo movie starring John Wayne's playing at the Pioneer Theater in downtown Manio. And, and so it's kind of a metaphor for that's what Cahoon was up against. I mean, he is outgunned. So he's smart enough to get in the SBI, which North Carolina routinely does on major cases. And um, the SBI put like five guys on it and, and put them put them up at my Uncle Billy's Ocean House Motel in Kildevil Hills and said, you know, we're going to put you here for a while and try, try to crack this thing. And the SBI is the State Bureau of Investigation. Exactly. So when it was noticed that she was missing from work, Danny Barber was the first one questioned because her co-workers knew that he had gone out with her the previous night. Right. Um, Danny um, was a big deal in the colony because he's he'd been there for three years. So he was a veteran. He was in the he was uh, in the choir and beautiful voice, um, great water skier, um, just well liked, um, handsome guy, um, kind of buff. And uh, from a from a modest background, he, he'd been in the um, Marine Band. So he and Brenda had had a couple of dates and, you know, in the colony, everybody knew everybody and everybody saw on the Friday night, the last night of June of 1967, they saw um, Danny and Brenda driving off from the Lost Colony in Danny's four-door white Corvair. And so by Danny's account, they, they drove over to Drafty Tavern, a great dive bar on the causeway in Nags Head and, and talked to a couple that was in the Lost Colony and drank a beer. And then the Drafty Tavern was shutting down. So they rode over to Jeanette's Pier and walked out there and Nags Head, and then they went over to Jockey's Ridge in Nags Head, which is our sand mountain. It's just a beautiful, tall dune, legendary. And they, they started to walk up there. And then they came and got back in Danny's car and went back to Danny's apartment. And then, uh, then the next day she's missing. So obviously he becomes a serious suspect. 
He was the last person who was known to have seen her. And his story was basically that they went back to his room, um, had a couple of beers, read a magazine together, kissed a little, and then he fell asleep. And when he woke up, she was gone. And he just assumed she had walked home. Yes, Eric. And let me clarify that a bit. Um, actually, he he tripped himself up a little early on, and that caused the sheriff and the SBI to, to really start liking him as a suspect. He um, originally said this, this was that Saturday night at the Lost Colony. Uh, people are saying, where is she? What what happened to Brenda? And then, then they all remember that Danny had a date with her. And Rennie Rains, who was um, this the beloved matriarch, she was the head costumer um, and just a star at the Lost Colony. She said, Danny, uh, so what happened? And Danny said, I don't know. I took her home. And Brenda rented a, um, a room in the, the family home of Cora Gray and Dick Twyford, this beloved couple. And Cora Gray played a columnist in the play. And she was standing right there and she said, no, Danny, you didn't drive her home. She never came home last night. And so, you know, people noticed what's what's this? Why was the shift in the story? And it was later speculated that, you know, Danny was embarrassed. He didn't want to shame Rennie. And, you know, he was embarrassed that he didn't take her home. Um, they probably passed out and she walked home. But that, you know, the sheriff and the SBI, as I said, they noticed that dissembling there and they didn't like it. Right. So they try to figure out where she could have gone. What could have happened to her? Um, Danny Barber had some roommates, so they questioned them. Uh, not only to see if they might have had something to do with it, but also to try and check to see if Danny was telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, as I say, Danny was only one of six major suspects. Uh, um, uh, so we had two. Actually, they lived in a house. Um, Danny was in the upstairs of the house and um, and two other guys were in the downstairs. Um, one of them was cleared early on. He had gone to see his girlfriend in New Jersey and that all checked out. Another one, um, Rodney Brett, uh, the sheriff and the SBI liked him as well for it. Um, and a lot of this had to do with um, there was this coarse, ugly stream of homophobia that ran through the case. And, and Rodney was gay. And uh, so there was this hairball theory that developed that um, because Rodney was gay, maybe he got jealous of, uh, you know, Brenda being with these straight guys and somehow whacked her because of that. So, and then there are other people that are saying that stories develop that Rodney may have been seen digging a, uh, a shallow grave near the lost colony. And so, so he's, he's one of, you know, a couple of other suspects that are developing. Right. So as Sheriff Cahoon investigates, he ends up questioning a man named Robert Midget, who lived about a quarter mile away from Danny Barber. And Midget had some very interesting information to share with the sheriff, right? Yes. Robert Midget becomes this just pivotal uh, link in the case. Um, fascinating guy. Um, he'd, been in the, he'd been in the lost colony with, um, with Andy back in the day. And by this time, uh, he was um, the supervisor of the local ABC store, local what North Carolina calls liquor stores. Um, and so 
the first thing that, that, that Robert Midget tells them was that on the night um, Brenda vanished, sometime in those early morning hours of July 1st, he heard, uh, he's, and he's sleeping in an upstairs room of his house, which is on Burnside Drive, just um, up the road from Danny's house. And he said around 3 a.m., he, uh, he heard what sounded like a car breaking down, someone trying to start a car. And he looked outside, it was dark, he couldn't see much. And, he, and, he, and then he heard what he said was an ungodly scream. Then he heard the car finally start up and drive away. And then there were later, there, there are other points. Uh, Robert continues to figure in the case. Um, and and there, this is a small island and Midget is a very common name. It's, it's the name of a lot of um, famous um, pe- guys that were in the U.S. Life Saving Service. But there were a lot of Robert Midgets around. So to distinguish him, as they often did, they gave him a nickname. They called him Singing Bob because he liked to go around singing opera. He had this big barrel chest, very dramatic guy. Um, So then, like within a few days, as the search is going on, he says that a man came in and he and and Robert's in the back of his office um, away from the front desk of the liquor store. And a man comes in. And he's and he says he pulls out a wallet to pay for his um, pint of whiskey. And the clerk says and the man's illiterate. And the clerk says the name, his name is George Washington King and says, George, you need to take that wallet to the sheriff's office. That's that's the missing girl's wallet. So George Washington King says, yeah, I will. And um, and so he goes on out. And, and so Robert comes out of the office after he left to ask the clerk, he said, Robert calls the sheriff's office and says, did George George Washington King bring that wallet in? They say no. So then they go pick up George Washington King. George Washington King is in a very precarious situation because he's African-American. And, you know, this is the old South and he's got he's got the dead girl's wallet. So Cahoon, you know, they 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 hustle him. They they question him and say, what's the deal? Um, They knew George Washington King was illiterate, um, you know, because you know, they weren't given good schools in that time, unfortunately. So finally the sheriff decided, you know, he knows George Washington King. He knows he's a drinker. He works, he works, he works as a landscaper, but he's, he figured, you he know, he's pretty harmless. So he said, George Washington King, sh- show me where you found this wallet. So George Washington King says, sure. And they go out and he shows him that. And there are all these other things scattered around. And it t- then later, there, as the search goes on, there are things, finding things scattered around different parts of the island, like things that would have come from Brenda's pocketbook, a book she had, makeup, and these things are scattered. Um, you know, they're in the they're in the poor white section of town, they're in the African-American section of town, and they're around the lost colony, right up to dramatically her shoes left right by the foot of the bridge to the mainland. And um, as they studied the case and, and the currents, uh, they came to theorize that, that Brenda's body had been dumped from, from the high span of that bridge, which is 45 feet up. And uh, then it had drifted about six miles. Um, and I, as I worked this case, there were in, now there's a new bridge on the other side of the island to replace that bridge. But this bridge is still still used, but it's just light traffic. So there was many a day. I would drive my old truck up to the top of that bridge and just sit and look at that water and think about Brenda. A quick break now. Back momentarily. Hey 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. And we have returned. So they got really lucky spotting her body it could easily have not been found yes um as i say if if whoever did it had taken her to the ocean the ocean is not as surrendering of her secrets as the sound is the sound you know is only is maybe 20 feet deep at its deepest and there's spots that are just several feet deep and she's going to kick things back to shore a lot of times you know, she would have sunk. And I've talked to um, people that do water rescue and they said, typically uh, a situation like that, the body's going to fill, the lungs are going to fill with water, the body's going to sink. And then slowly within days, it's going to rise up and come back up. So what happened was they enlisted the Civil Air Patrol. So these two guys in the Civil Air Patrol are out in a plane, you know, searching and they spot it. And um, it's, it's a guy, it's a guy named Major King. And he looks down and he, he said he'd never forget the site. I mean, this is a spot. It's like um, this is about six miles from the bridge where she was thrown from. It's near a fishing community called Mashoes. And uh, and it's even a part. It's even, you know, miles of a few miles north of that fishing community. So nobody when he sees a body down there that major knows that this is not a recreational beach. There's nobody's going to be floating out there. So he circles a little closer, as close as he could safely go. And he saw that, 
body and he never got over it. And he, you know, radios the coordinates to the sheriff's office. Sheriff Cahoon tears out, you know, he's, he's roaring off in his cruiser with his whiplash antenna, big old Ford. He's, he's, you know, got one left hand on the wheel, his right hand on the mic. He's barking orders and going down this dirt road. Um, surprisingly enough, the sheriff's office patrolling a county that was mostly water didn't have a boat then. But he knew this dentist from Greensboro, North Carolina, that had a shack there in Mashoe. So he said, Dr. Henson, can 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 you take your boat and get me out of there? And Dr. Henson says, sure. And they take him. And and, you know, they um, Dr. Henson brought along a big old canvas tarp and they, they hauled the body in there. It was so decomposed, even over just several days, that the only way Sheriff Cahoon, you know, knew it was Brenda was he had gotten a description of her clothing and the clothing description matched. So then he has Danny brought in to identify the body as they're sitting there by the sound. And, you know, Brenda's parents were in town by then. He could have had them identify the body, but he's very calculating and wanted Danny to identify the body. He wants to shake the guy. He wants to drive a confession right there. And Danny looks and takes a few steps away. And then he says, that's Brenda. And the sheriff's thinking, wait a minute, you know, she's so decomposed and he was liable to, he's liable to been half drunk that night. How does he know that's Brenda? And before Sheriff, Sheriff can say anything, Danny says, I know that's her because that necklace she has on, that's her necklace she got for being named um, Miss Congeniality back at her home county beauty pageant last summer. So it's like checkmate. I mean, the sheriff realizes at that point that trying to crack that guy is going to be a long one. And in the meantime, as you said, her parents arrive, and her dad is quite a character. He goes by shotgun, right? Yeah, he's 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 fascinating. Um, so her parents are shotgun and Jerry. Jerry's kind of looks like Brenda, but shorter, beautiful woman. And uh, and the father is Charles Charles um, Wiley, shotgun Holland, and they called him shotgun because he was explosive, wiry little guy. Been in World War II um, in combat. He kind of looked like Monty Clifton from Here to Eternity and kind of that same coiled type guy and uh, probably had, you know, they didn't call it PTSD then, but he probably had that from the war. I mean, he was already as, as, as bad to drink by then and Brenda's death would make him even more bad to drink. And so he's, he's down there. I mean, he and um, he and Jerry are up there with the younger children at a trailer they have up in the mountains on a lake and they hear about it. Uh, a deputy comes and gets them that Sunday night that Brenda's missing and they tear out in his Ford Sunliner, which was kind of a cousin to a Thunderbird. And they race down. I mean, it's like eight hours to get to the coast, but they do it. And uh, he's smoking, maybe nipping some. And, you know, the whole time Brenda's missing, he's walking the streets of that town and he's he's determined to find out who what happened to his daughter or die trying. And so then the sheriff you know, he comes back to Manio after clearing the crime scene and he he tells um, Shotgun and Jerry, you know, what happened. And um, Shotgun says, you know, some people might say that was a suicide, but no, sir, that won't a suicide. And he says, find out, you know, tell, find out who did it. And the sheriff, uh, they, you know, I was telling you about the necklace. The sheriff, they'd taken, this is the first um, blunder the sheriff had made in the case. He'd let a good local photographer, this was not the photographer's fault, it was the sheriff's fault because he lost control of the crime scene. He lets him take that necklace off of Brenda's body. He's ripping skin away with it because the body's that decomposed. Washes it off in the sound and takes pictures of it. 
Then he gives it to the sheriff. The sheriff gives it to Shotgun Holland, and the family keeps it from then on. This is, and the pathologist would soon rule this a case of ligatory strangulation and a, something that had been around her neck that could, could have been around fibers of whatever was used to strangle her, and it was not preserved. That's crazy. Also crazy was that the sheriff allowed her clothes to be washed in a washing machine. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I knew this to be fact because a woman that, that I worked with at, the, at, at Nags Head on the Outer Banks, um, just, just a couple of miles from the island, she was telling me uh, when, when my first sto- stories about this came out in the Coastland Times, she called me and she said, John, those clothes were given me, me to wash. She said, I, I know this for a fact because I was pregnant with my first child. So I know exactly the timing of this. And I said to my friend, I said, well, why? And she said, well, the, she said a law enforcement officer gave them to them and said they were stinking up the office. This was a friend of Cahoon's. And uh, yes, I can see, you know, that there, there might have been some odor, certainly. But even for 1967, you would not do that. Because even though those clothes had been in the sound, you don't know what the hell kind of fibers might have been on there. I mean, it was that's it, it, it didn't make any sense. That was why I have on the back of my book, Justice Washed Away. I wanted to name it. I wanted to name the book that, but I, my publisher wanted to go with their title. But they let me put Justice Washed Away on the back because I think it was. Uh, as you've said, Sheriff Cahoon becomes preoccupied with Danny Barber. But there are many other suspects, and one of the more nefarious suspects is this dentist named Linus Edwards. Yeah, I mean, Linus was, uh, he's the only dentist on the island, and so they needed that guy. But he had a reputation as being a terrible, terrible-ass drunk and, uh, and beat his wife. He's married to Dottie Fry, who's just beautiful. Um, mo- she, she'd been a model and um, just just lovely. Um, everybody loved Dottie, and um, he would beat Dottie. And um, I heard about all of. I mean, I had a key source in this, in that Dottie's daughter Claudia is one of my best friends, Claudia Harrington, and she um, she would tell me about this. And uh, as I started to work the case, she um, I kind of aligned with Claudia. And with Brenda's little sister, Kim, and with a deputy that reopened the case in 1995, Buddy Tillett. And the four of us kind of stuck together on the case and we became fast friends and just kind of worked it together. Um, but uh, but Linus, yeah, he was a piece of work. He'd get drunk and wander by the... I mean, this is kind of like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil stuff. Like um, Manio's got... Manio, which is the county seat of Dare, which is the main town on Roanoke Island, has this wonderful little back street called Wendina and um, it's got a, it's got a cemetery on there. And it's about a couple of miles from where Linus lived in this beautiful house by the sound. Um, so Dr. Edwards, he'd get drunk and, and wander by that cemetery at night and wander around people's houses and just, just real creepy blackout mean ass drunk, but he, he's also just brilliant. He was like a, he was Menza. Um, and he'd let people know it and openly having affairs. He was in brawling with people, with the husbands of people he's having affairs with. At one point, Dottie comes home from work at midday and catches uh, Dr. Edwards um, in the act with his mistress right there in their living room. Um, so not a likable guy. 
No, definitely not. <laughs> so why was Edwards considered a suspect? Just because of the fact that neighbors heard neighbors heard Dottie and um, Linus having a, a big ass fight that night. And uh, they, these neighbors are a couple of doors down, you know, in the summer back then, there wasn't as much air conditioning. A lot of people left their windows open. And so they hear them in the early morning hours of July 1st, Dottie and Linus having this huge fight. Um, Dottie, they hear um, Dottie's van starting up and she goes out. Then a few minutes later, they hear Linus's car starting up. Um, Dottie looked a lot like Brenda. Um, they, were, Dot, they were both tall. Um, Dottie was about 5'11". Brenda was about 5'7". But they both had long necks and they both had recently dyed their hair blonde. And they both, both was, both of their hair was kind of, in both cuts were kind of a bob cut. So Dottie was good friends with um, one of um, Danny Barber's housemates. And she would often, she, she'd sometimes visit at the house. So, she, so she, she did go by there. She left a note that night that she stopped by the house to borrow beer. So she's leaving the house. Dr. Edwards is pursuing her. She stops by Danny's house and then she moves along. And then, so, so, you know, the whole thing is that all of a sudden Linus has the motive and means and he's in the proximity. He's looking around, he's riding around that neighborhood looking for Dottie and, um, and he knows he knows that she's friends with the guy that lives in Danny's house, and he's jealous of that. They were just friends, but but Linus is crazy jealous. Um, so that you know, there was this one theory that that he may have come on Brenda and thought it was Dottie. Meanwhile, though, as that, but the but the sheriff he's not taking that seriously, and he's you know they didn't even question Dottie, and Dottie wants to talk, but the sheriff. They like Danny, and um, so they continue to work him. Uh, Dr. Edwards, extremely suspicious. But it seems as though the sheriff's department treated him with kid gloves. Yes, they were deferential. And, you know, and as, as I say at the start of this book, like like a lot of this is is about what it means to be an outsider and what it means to be an insider. And... Um, Dr. Edwards was married into a prominent family on the island, even though they didn't even especially like him. Um, and then you had outsiders like Rodney Brett's an outsider because of his sexuality. Um, you have two African-American suspects that are outsiders, even though they'd long lived on the island, but because of their pigment unjustly, then they're outsiders. Then you had a David, you had David Whaley, who's the grandson of the local Episcopal priest and lives a few doors down from, um, Dr. Edwards in the Tony um, Mother Vineyard um, neighborhood of of um, the island, but David is an outsider because he's just renegade. Uh, parents had divorced. He dropped out of, of um, East Carolina University, and so he's riding around drunk that night with uh, with the unofficial town watchman, who's an outsider. Dennis Midget, everybody called him Den, and everybody loved Den, but he's mentally challenged. And in those days, he didn't get special education in the local school system. Um, so they're riding around that night. So the fascinating thing, you have the African-American suspects are riding around in the vicinity of Brenda's neighborhood. Dr. Edwards is riding around there. David Whaley and Dennis Midget are riding around there. So it's 
and Rodney Brett's in the house right there. So it's, 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 it's a hell of a thing to try to figure out which of those suspects did it. And then a guy you call Rob Breeze, who was reported to have been abusive to Brenda on a date once. Yeah, and I'm going to leave a little. I'm not going to, you know, leave a little suspense there. But I'll tell you just a tease to that is that Brenda was really. I was telling you about Rennie Rains, who was the star costumer. She worked for she in the off season. She was at worked with North Carolina Playmakers in Chapel Hill, which is a big deal, which produced Andy Griffith and Thomas Wolf. And so Rennie, again, the the matriarch of the play, and and she took Brenda in and. Um, Brenda talked to her and confided in her about things. And a, a week before Brenda was killed, she told she told Randy that she'd had a date with this guy, Rob Breeze, and she said something happened that made me very uncomfortable. And she didn't go into details, but it really gave Randy a creepy feeling. So one of the scenes in your book, it has to do with the local chief of police, Ken Whittington, who has a professional rivalry with Sheriff Cahoon. Yeah, to say the least. Um, and uh, Yeah, they're both, you know, they're both top dogs. And, you know, and Cahoon's been in that job, you know, Cahoon's 60 years old. And uh, he'd been in that job since right after World War II. And he, you know, he he worked hard to, to win, you know, every four years, he's got to win re-election. He worked hard to do that. And he had a huge base and following and um the democratic party ruled um ruled the county then um and he was strong in it and ken whittington is compared to that ken whittington's a little dog you know he's the chief of police he's got like maybe one deputy he's the chief of police of manny or one deputy under him and yeah he wanted to be he wanted to be uh he would have liked to have been sheriff and so he starts working the case and he has no jurisdiction in it because she's found in the county and, you know, his, his, his jurisdiction stops at the town limits, but he continues to work it. And at one point he, um, a year, the summer after Brenda was killed, the summer of 1968, you know, he says he's gotten this confession from, from one of the suspects and calls a big town meeting and, and takes, takes Cahoon by surprise. So there was a lot of acrimony. I don't want to name names and go too much into that, but it's it was some political hardball. And um, Whittington was a little out of line, but Whittington later redeemed himself. And and uh, he was one of the few lawmen on the case to get out of his tunnel vision and, and look at the case in a new light and get off the suspect he was looking at. Um, and uh, as, I, as I say in the book, I, I mean, I give full credit to the families of these lawmen. I mean, some of a lot of them are my friends, these grown children, including Ken Whittington's widow shared with me notes that Ken later um, made when he reinvestigated the case. And it's fascinating how his his mind's changing on it. I mean, it was a mistake for Cahoon to focus so singularly on Danny Barber. You don't think that Barber had anything to do with this, right? I, I give no spoiler alerts, um, Eric. I'll just say there were six suspects, and you have to really buy the book to figure it out. But he was one of six suspects. I will say that um, 
the sheriff and the, the one of the and the chief the, basically the lead SBI agent on it. He wasn't not in rank, but in actions was Lenny Wise, who came from the same part of mainland Dare County as the sheriff. They both spoke in the brogue. They went back years. Um, like Lenny Wise at the time is about 40, the sheriff's 60, but old friends. And this happens a lot in, in to this day in cases, especially where you have uh, investigators that are close and they get tunnel vision. They zero in on one suspect. And I've, I've worked in my journalism career. I've worked a lot of, including death penalty cases and murder cases, a lot of murder cases where you see them. They cannot get off of that initial suspect. They go for it. It's, it's, you know, it's tunnel vision. So a surprising phone call comes in for Cahoon from Dr. Linus Edwards. He wants to speak to him right away. And this is in February of 1971. So authorities show up at his house and they find that Dr. Edwards had killed himself. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's February 14th, 1971, Valentine's Day. And... Um, as we as we've talked about, Linus Edwards was bad to drink, but he'd been on a mean one the week before, so bad that he had his lawyer Dwight Wheelis take him to the small town of Columbia, about thirty miles away, to dry out for a week. That Sunday afternoon, um, Dwight Wheelis, his lawyer, had just picked him up in Columbia and taken him back to his house, and you know, and so Linus that afternoon, he um, he's back at his soundfront house by himself. By then, he and Dottie are divorced. Um, even even Linus's mistress had left him was left him so he's all alone in that nice sound front house and uh, that afternoon he does one errand he um, he had he had he had been working on some dentures for um, the town doctor Dr. Harvey and he carried those dentures over and the Harveys were out about at a Valentine's Day party so but in the nature of the time time they left the house unlocked and Linus went in and just set the box with the dentures on the dining room table and and walked out, he goes back to his house and um, um, by about 6.30 p.m. And some of his relatives think maybe he started drinking again, but he places a couple of calls. He wants he wants Dwight Willis, his lawyer, to come over. He, put, he places another call to the sheriff's office. He wants he wants them to send the sheriff over. And um, and then he uh, for some reason, the sheriff didn't respond. And, and also he wants Dr. Harvey to come, but Dr. Harvey, they, as I said, they're at, a, they're at the, um, a Valentine's Day party. So Dwight Willis, the lawyer, he, he had told Linus, he said, well, I'll, I'll come as soon as my wife gets back, but I'm, I'm here along with my children because they have the flu. So as soon as she gets back, I'll, I'll be there. So he, she gets back about seven. So Dwight Willis runs over to the, um, drives over to the house. Um, nobody's answering. So he goes in the unlocked door and found, finds Linus um, on the floor in his kitchen his um, 22 pistol by his side um, and uh, shot himself in the head. And so they get him to, uh, to the, I think to the hospital in Portsmouth, Virginia, probably the nearest place that had a neurosurgeon. Uh, Dr. Linus hangs on for about two days in a coma and then he, then he's gone. Uh, there was a note beside him and Dwight Willis says the only thing on it was just some figures like numbers. Um, the locals still believe that he had, that Dwight Willis was clear. It was not a suicide note. Locals still, still believe it was. It's interesting that the sheriff, nobody from the sheriff's office responded to the house that night. So 
you know, Linus, if nothing else, was dramatic. And who knows what he had called them for, why he wanted his lawyer, Dr. Harvey, and the sheriff to come to that house, whether he was going to say he didn't do it or did it. Who knows? And the scene was slightly suspicious, perhaps a suggestion that he might not have committed suicide and something more ominous had happened to him, maybe, correct? Yeah, that, that Eric, was mainly a rumor on the island that maybe he was murdered, but I do know there was no evidence of that. I mean, I, I do think it was suicide. And this was a guy that had been, I mean, he, as I say in the book, I mean, going back to when he was an uh, Army colonel doctor, he tried to off himself um, with a razor blade back uh, maybe in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, terribly troubled, bad relationship with his parents. Once once claimed he caught his mother in bed with another man when he was a child. And so he'd all, this is like, I think that suicide was what he'd been working on for years with the bottle going back to the incident in the army and then just the slow suicide by bottle all his life. We will return in a few moments. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, 
flat earth theory. And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Back again. Can you talk about your involvement in the investigation years later? Yes. So in the summer of um, 2018, and all this was so serendipitous because um, I was downsized from my job as the editorial page editor of the Winston-Salem Journal in February 2018. So I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and I'm slowly getting into freelance writing and some investigative work. And um, I went to see the movie Chappaquiddick, the latest movie about Ted Kennedy um, and the and the woman in his car that was found dead in the water. And I was going to write, this was in, that took place in 1969. So I was going to write a one-off column on that. And I started to write it and I thought, well, we had something involving prominent people right here. This Brenda case I've always been fascinated with. So I wrote the column time comparing Chappaquiddick to our case. And in the course of writing that column, I tracked down Brenda's little sister, Kim, who'd been waiting for somebody to tell that story and reopen it. So I wrote that column thinking that column was going to be a one-off. And within a week, uh, uh, a, a source, I always say I have the best sources in the world and I'm so grateful for them. A source slips me the Holy Grail, the SBI file on the case, which is 400 pages. It's the summer love. It's got seances, the supernatural, a supposed child grave and the suicide. So once I read that thing through a few times, I said, OK, I got to write a book on this. And so I did. But before that, in the summer 2018, the spring and summer 2018, I had friends at the Coastland Times, the great little weekly newspaper based in Manio, and I did a, a series of investigative columns um, for them. And within the first few of those columns, the SBI reopened the case. Um, it was ironic because they were reopening it based on my reading of their file and what I found in that file. Um, they put a cold case agent on it and he, he told me early on, he said, you know, we don't do the, you don't crack a cold case with circumstantial. What we do find is we got to do it from physical evidence with DNA. And that's when we found that the evidence was gone, whether it was destroyed or disappeared. And in North Carolina, the policy is the evidence goes to the SBI for testing. Then they routinely give it back to the local sheriff's office. Well, for whatever reason, right around the time of Cahoon's administration, that evidence is gone. I mean, they don't know to this day whether it was destroyed or disappeared. Evidence was sometimes destroyed to make just because there wasn't room to keep everything. But this was one of the highest profile cases in the state. They they would not have. It's that, that evidence should never have been destroyed or allowed to disappear. But that when they said that the SBI was basically saying we can't crack this one, John. So at that point, that's when I decided, okay, if this case is not going to be solved in the criminal justice system, I'm sure as hell going to solve it journalistically. Um, I'm going to try to bring some closure to Brenda's family. I'm going to say, and I drive to the point at the end of the book, my case for who killed her and why. And so that was the main point. And the other point was to honor Brenda's legacy there are thousands and thousands of articles about the lost colony, hundreds of books about it. But this woman who literally gave her life working in the lost colony 
was all but forgotten. There'd never been a nonfiction book on this case. So that's what I set out to do. Uh, you mentioned seances. There was someone peripherally connected to this case, the famed psychic Gene Dixon. Right, right. At some point, someone wrote um, Brenda's parents a letter and said, why don't you why don't you get her in on that? There's no evidence she was ever brought in, but I include a lot. I've got a whole chapter in the book, Seances and the Supernatural, because, again, this is 1967. And, you know, I was six years old. I can remember we had Ouija boards and there are passages in the file where people talk about and I conclude that in the book, they're talking about they're sitting around the Ouija board and, and they're talking about Brenda's case. And at one point, this little high schooler says, I did it or something. And so they go track him down and, he, and he's just just a crazy loose end. But at one point, um, Brenda's roommate says she calls she calls the sheriff's office like it's toward the end of the season of night, the, the Lost County season of 67. She said, y'all got to come over to my house tonight. There's a guy that heard something at a seance last night. So they go over there and they hear that out. And so that's a whole nother story. But Eric, just speaking of creepy things like that in the book, and at one point, um, and, and again, this, this goes to the racism part. So one of the African-American suspects had a, had a white, a white woman was his girlfriend, which you got to remember, um, loving versus Virginia, which decriminalized interracial marriage had just been, that just was, that just came out in June of that summer. So, I mean, it was, this is the old South and it was a wrong, ragged, unjust place. So, you know, they're kind of looking at him anyway, what's he doing? Why is he in an interracial relationship? So at one point his white lover starts to inform on him who turns out she's just, she's so whacked out that even one of her family members says, hell, she's a hallucinogenic drunk. I mean, she's she's so bad off drinking. She has hallucinations, but she they're listening to her when she's telling her about the black suspect. And at one point, she says he has this hidden box under. It's like a coffin structure um, hidden underneath his floorboards, and I think there's some of Brenda's bloody clothing in there. So they go to his house and they say she's not there, and they say we want to search your house, and he says go ahead. And so they go in the bedroom, they lift up a rug, they lift, they find a little wooden panel they can lift up and they see this coffin-like structure down there and they open it up. And I'll leave it, I'm going to leave, leave it to the buyers of the book to tell you what was in that coffin-like box. They did make liberal use of, of lie detector tests and they actually gave one to Linus Edwards, who, who passed. But you also make the point that lie detectors were unreliable in the 1960s. Yeah. I mean, Danny failed his and Dr. Irwin's passed his. I mean, they're used and in, in, I know this because uh, one thing, another thing I do is I do mitigation investigations for the state um, on death penalty cases. And so I work, I established the fact that rough childhoods and things that would explain somebody's behavior later on in life. Um, but in that work, I work closely with the fact investigators on cases and the lawyers so I know that, you know, lie detector tests came out in the early 20th century and they, you know, they've never been admissible in court because they're not not totally proven. But yet they're used all the time by defense and prosecutors to, to, to you know, kind of weigh what they think and backroom calculations on figuring out their own client or things like that. So 
you can, for somebody like doctor, you know, if, if you're whacked out, if you're a sociopath or if you're whacked out on drugs, you can sail through one. Yeah. So Brenda's family, you've talked to some of them. This book, uh, besides being a book about a murder case, is also a remembrance of Brenda. How does the family remember Brenda? The, the three um, siblings that are left are, are, are close, and, and they talk about her, and um, they remember her in different ways. Um, Kim is the one that's taken the most aggressive stance on trying to find things out. And, and uh, she was nine years old when it happened. And I, as I say in the book, she, she was telling me about it didn't hit her that Brenda was really gone until she was 13 and she had a little boy over and they're like adolescents with their first little crush and they're sitting on her couch and they're looking at her scrapbook and she's looking through it and she sees Brenda in the scrapbook and she looks at her and she starts to cry right there in front of this little boy because she knows her sister. She knew then for a certainty her sister was never coming back. Um, Charles Hoyt, the son, um, he tells me that, you know, he's, he's, he'll tell you, he said, he said, I'll tell you what, I was broken after that and I've never really recovered. He said, Kim can look at this and deal with it. He said, it's very hard for me. Um, but each of them, and I, I, I love them for so much for this, the children, Ann Holland, um, early and Charles Hoyt Holland and, and Brenda, I mean, Kim, that's how Kim, Kim looks a lot like Brenda. And I think she's the closest thing I'll ever know to knowing Brenda. And sometimes I'll call her that and she'll say, that's just John, but it's just, they, they broke through these, this thing they didn't want to deal with to talk to me because they did. And I, I think hopefully it's brought them some measure of closure. This is one of those stories that, that, of course, didn't happen that long ago, uh, which makes it difficult because you have to be extra sensitive. People connected to it are still alive. And in a few cases, you had to change their names. Right. And, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, in some cases, the grown children of some of these law enforcement officers are my friends. I mean, I got to look these people in the eye and luckily they were honest. And I've always found in journalism, just don't surprise people. Just let them know what's coming. And I would call them up and say, bud, I need to, you know, I, I don't like to say this about your father, but it figures in the case. I got to go there. And he said, that's okay. I appreciate you telling me that. And so that's the way. And I, I, I really appreciate those grown children being that candid and honest and, and understanding. Right. Do locals still talk about the murder? Does it still hit close to home? And what was the reception like of the book? Right. Yeah. I mean, for people my age, um, you know, I'm 60. It's it's right in our heart and soul. I mean, um, so on the on the Outer Banks, it's been a bestseller. And um, one place, Downtown Books, tells me it's their bestseller of the year. Um, I got a good bad problem in that the, the publisher can't really is it's gone through like two runs now and can't print them fast enough so so that's a good thing um but another sense is i wanted this to be kind of a love song to that vanishing time of innocence on the outer banks um that the place that where people of my age group grew up there it's just not the same i mean it's it's then i mean my cottage didn't have a telephone in it until this 
1970s. Uh, and there was just all this open space and no crowds. And it, it was like the last frontier. And now it's just the whole Outer Banks is McMansion to the hilt. It's traffic jams. It's it's too much concrete. It's 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 not the same place it was. So I think what I I think I've heard from a lot of friends and readers that they they you know the number one they appreciate telling honoring Brenda and trying to solve it. And a lot of them too will mention that, you know, you tell it like it is and you're telling us about just what it was like then and what we miss about that place. Oh, that's great. So for people who want to learn more about you, uh, contact you, how would they do it? Um, I am on Facebook under my name and people are, people are welcome to contact me through there. Um, and also, I would say that if for people wanting to buy the book, that it's available on Amazon or my publisher, Arcadia Publishing. And um, I really appreciate all the readership and all the good comments I'm, I'm getting from it. Um, and, I, it, you know, it's a weird, as you know, Eric, writing a book, uh, this thing, it was like, you know, as I say, I was downsized and I was doing some freelancing. But the, for the first time in my life, I wasn't like uh, writing a book you know, solely on weekends and after work. I mean, I could just spend days with it and go through that file and be with all these characters. And so they're becoming your friends, these characters in this book, and you're all alone with them. And uh, so, and you don't know how the world's going to receive it. So it's been gratifying that, that a lot of the world's received it pretty well. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Again, I have been speaking to John Rayley. He is the author of The Lost Colony Murder on the Outer Banks, Seeking Justice for Brenda Joyce Holland. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.